Welcome along to another coronavirus update. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. We're recording this on the evening of Sunday the 5th of April. It's been a dramatic evening with the Queen's address to the nation which was followed about an hour or so later by the news that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been admitted to hospital. We'll be reflecting on all that. We'll also be reflecting on the latest statistics which I'm afraid is very grim news. Uh, we'll be discussing conspiracy theorists. We'll be discussing the um, antibody test, which both Greg and I think is overrated in terms of its importance. We'll also assess the situation in Singapore, where they tried to bring people out of the lockdown situation. And unfortunately, that resulted in a spike in cases. And we round off the podcast by discussing how we're keeping ourselves cheerful during this very difficult time and what we've been watching on the telly and how what books we've been reading and Greg has been enjoying himself in the garden. So do please stay with us. I'm sure this will be a fascinating discussion. Greg, we're recording this at uh, 22.11 on Sunday evening, Sunday the 5th of April. And to put it mildly, it's been quite a dramatic evening because Her Majesty the Queen addressed the nation at 8pm. And about an hour and a quarter later, it was announced that Prime Minister Boris Johnson had been admitted to hospital um, for what we believe are tests. It was not an emergency admission. It's a precautionary admission, as we believe. We'll start this discussion then with um, the Queen's uh, address to the nation. Uh, Only the fifth time such an address has been made outside of Christmas Day in all her years um, as Queen, which is over 60 years now, as we know. And therefore, this, I think the Queen got the tone exactly right in that she paid tribute to those in the emergency service and those that are trying to keep life in this country ticking along and those who are on the front line, so to speak. There was also that element of stiff upper lip. There was an undercurrent of it of, look, I've seen hardship before in my life as a young woman. There was that throwback to that 1940 address of her and Princess Margaret. If we can get through that, we can get through this. And I think that the timing of this was interesting because we're, what, two and a bit weeks into the lockdown now. And the Queen has a gravitas that no other world leader has because... For all the years she's been on the throne, and it's well over 60 years now, she has never made a significant faux pas. Um, She has stayed out of politics. She's tread that line particularly well. Um, And she has the respect not only of the Commonwealth, but the world well beyond the Commonwealth. So when she speaks, the world listens. And the time of it it as well, we're... you know, I, I'm an only child. I can enjoy my own company to a very large extent, but we're all getting a little bit run down with things now and a bit tired and a bit fed up. And also, today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week for Christians. It's also a close to the start of Ramadan for Muslims and Passover for Jewish people is not far away. And this is a time when people want to be together, want to worship together, want to be around their families. And obviously, circumstances mean that cannot be the case. And I think the timing was significant in that way as well. Your thoughts on the Queen's address, please. Well, firstly, I'd like to bring your attention to the fact that um, it may well have been the fifth, only the fifth occasion, but she's been in the public eye continuously for 90 years. Mm. So she has got a fair old experience of um, life in general relative to everyone else. Mm -hmm. Also, do bear in mind that 
she selected at the age of 21 to be the queen of the commonwealth as virtually a higher duty than queen of these united kingdoms and that's the largest single body of people on this planet um, more than the population of china astonishingly uh, it's something like 2.4 billion and of those people she is the leader and this speech was made not just for the people of britain but for the people of the commonwealth and that commonwealth has stood us in very good stead over a very long time it was the commonwealth that came to our aid when we alone engaged in war in the first world war when we alone engaged in war in the second world war we entered with no allies other than the commonwealth granted some other countries then did join with us in putting down evil on those two occasions i hope that we will continue to work with the commonwealth in finding a solution to this great evil do you the think pandemic. the queen got the tone of it correct then because i think she did i think that there was this balance of paying tribute to those who were on the front line and also this sort of a little bit of stiff upper lip which we need to get through this and the little reminder that at the end of it all well hopefully anyway we can never guarantee this but hopefully there will come a time where we can be with our friends and our family safely again and she was just, you know, saying, hold your line, hold your nerve, and we'll get through this. I, I think, think she got the tone very good. I think it was very good. But one thing that I think many people have overlooked is at least two thirds of the population of that Commonwealth are under the age of 30. Mm. So she very, very wisely alluded to her childhood and the very first speech she ever made that was broadcast with her sister margaret mm. to show that this happens to children too mm. and to show that she understands those aspects uh, and that was children who were evacuated from their parents for their own security yeah, and, and what we've also got to bear that. in mind, we've got to bear in mind as well that for those of us in the United Kingdom, it is only the oldest members of society today who can remember a time when anyone other than Queen Elizabeth II was on the throne. She has been a source of continuity and stability in this country for a very long time indeed. And even people who are not ardent royalists hold her, to, for, in, for most cases, in a great deal of respect because of her life of duty and of service. Yes, you've got an element on Twitter who are making silly comments. Yes, we know that that was always going to happen. But for the most part, whether you're a royalist or whether you're indifferent to them, or maybe if you're a Republican, a lot of people, almost all people in this country, hold her in respect for her life of service. And I think 
the timing of her address at this moment where we're at this sort of double helix of more than two weeks in lockdown combined with this being a, an important event, uh, an important week in the religious calendar for three of the world's great faiths. I think the time of it was very good and I think the tone of it was very good. I agree in, entirely. Um, however, I go back to how do we recover from this afterwards, assuming we can get a controlled ending to it? And I believe that is something of a dangerous assumption at the moment. There is no indication that we can. But yeah, yeah, we're going to go into we this in more depth. We will require the support and commerce and trade between not just the Commonwealth, but also the Anglosphere. Mm. other countries who are our great allies. Yes, yes, that, that I agree with. So the Queen made her speech at 8pm this evening, and then it was only, what, an hour and a quarter later that there was a, a news alert on all the main news channels, and my phone was going mad with news alerts. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been admitted to hospital this evening. First of all, I'm sure I speak on behalf of, of Greg as well, when we wish him a full and a speedy recovery. Um, but the point here is that Boris Johnson, he, he's been in self-isolation for, what, 10 days or so now. It was the Friday, not the Friday just gone, the Friday of the week before when this began for him. And I have to say, with every day that has passed in the last week, he's looked more and more ill to me. Now, I, you normally get admitted to hospital with this with uh, respiratory problems. So that is, I don't believe he's got any significant health problems at 55 years of age beyond that. Um, but he is now, whatever happens, he may, many people will be listening to this uh, on Monday or Tuesday. They're, they're, the story may well have developed in the period between us talking now and this podcast being released. But it does seem clear that he's going to need a period now of proper recuperation. Not He's tried to work through it, carry on doing his job in isolation. It hasn't really worked for him. He's now going to have to delegate responsibility for the foreseeable future. And the obvious name that would now go to making all the big decisions would be Dominic Raab. But is there going to be some sort of power struggle at the top of government in the days ahead? I don't think that there will be a power struggle, to be honest, um, because I can see uh, no one who can present a more united front than Dominic Raab could. But Dominic Raab with... Uh, Johnson's guide, guiding hand in the background and the full knowledge that this is uh, with his authority is a stronger Dominic Raab uh, than should something worse happen to Johnson. And heaven forfend uh, that at this time uh, we find ourselves without a leader and having to uh, swear in a new leader. Yeah, let, let's, let's not jump the gun too much on that. Our priority should be to wish Boris Johnson well at the moment. And uh, uh, it doesn't bear thinking about that, to be honest. But, uh, you know, that thought has crossed all of our minds, I think. Well, I um, think contingency planning makes it imperative that it crosses your mind. Well, yes. Um, but priority number one, let's... There may be more news by the time people are listening to this, but let's wish Boris Johnson all the very best at the moment. Um, so to look at the state of the coronavirus in the UK, these figures I'm about to read out are about six hours old now. 
Um, there's been uh, a total number of persons tested of 195,524. That is up 12,334 in the last 24 hours. Now, in, I'll, I'll give the figures now in, in terms of confirmed cases increase in the last 24 hours. And like I say, these, these are from late afternoon today. England is up 5,082. Scotland is up 361. Wales is up 369. Northern Ireland is up 91. And the number of deaths in the United Kingdom, I'm afraid, is up 621 to a total of 4,934. And now that I've said that, I just want to ask one thing of people listening to this, because I'm afraid I'm still seeing, particularly on Facebook, people posting ludicrous conspiracy theorists. I should point out, by the way, that the Mail on Sunday has had to print a correction this week in response to a claim Peter Hitchens made last week. Look it up if you want to. I'm not going into that now. But we did talk about Peter Hitchens in last week's podcast. I would say to people, please stop sharing misinformation on social media. This is not a conspiracy. It's very, very real. If you doubt what I'm saying, go and ask any doctor or nurse in an Italian hospital if this is a normal April day. In, particularly in northern Italy, it is not. Ask Boris Johnson if this is a normal type of flu he's got. It isn't. He's, he, he was self-isolating a week Friday ago, and he's looked worse and worse with every day that's passed since. It is very obviously real. This is very obviously uh, uh, not just, it was, it's not really comparable to flu. And this is something to be taken very seriously. And the advice is clear. You stay at home unless it is essential you travel to work. If you can work from home, you should work from home. You are permitted to leave your house to buy essential foods um, and to provide essential frontline services. And you exercise once a day alone or with members of your household. Yes, it's not easy not seeing your girlfriend or your boyfriend if they live somewhere else. Yes, we can't hug our parents or anything like that. Yes, indeed, we can't meet up with our friends for a pint. But for crying out loud, it is not worth the risk. Please get that into your heads. You stay at home as much as you possibly can. The harsh reality is, if everybody plays the game and plays to the rules, as laid down by our government, not by idiot conspiracy theorists like Amir Khan, and the totally irresponsible independent newspaper online who voiced his idiot uh, conspiracy, giving it oxygen of publicity, God knows why. But if you stay in line, bear in mind that we elected a government to govern us and guide us through this sort of event. We must now back them. Stop criticizing them. Stop saying that there are better ways to do it. You don't have the level of information they have. Neither do you have the team around you of people with the information. On top of that, even if they're wrong, that is the direction they are leading us in. If we had had Winston Churchill with an opposition that spent its whole time sniping and attacking him all the way through the war, I promise 
we would have lost. So would everybody kindly shut up and let them get on with it and back them to the hilt? Because if you don't, be assured you're a very long time dead and you could be the victim. And on top of that, so it's a sunny day and you want to go out in the sun. The sun will be there later in the year, next year, and in future years. It's one of the certainties of life. Hold your water, ladies and gentlemen. Life will go on after this is over. It may be a very different life, but it won't go on for a lot of people if we don't obey the rules. Very well said, and I thank you for saying that. You've said some very important things. I think Winston Churchill was lucky in one sense in that during that period, the Labour Party, the opposition party, the Labour Party was led by a grown-up in Clement Attlee, and uh, Churchill brought him into the inner circle, so to speak, and valued his opinions. Uh, unfortunately, that's not something that can be said out of the, uh, the Jeremy Corbyn years. Well, Labour has a new leader now in Sir Keir Starmer. I'm not his biggest supporter by any stretch of the imagination. And, um, but however, that said, he says he wants to work constructively with the Prime Minister. We should just sit tight on that and, and let's see if he's true to his word. He's only been in the post a day. Let's see if that proves to be the case. And looking ahead then, there's been a lot of talk in the last week about this antibody test that's being rolled out now, uh, slowly it seems. And I have to be honest, I think that the talk of it, the importance of it has been overstated. So for example, you test a doctor or a nurse and they give their blood sample and they put it into this little gadget that they've devised and it tells them they had the test, they had the uh, coronavirus some weeks ago and they're now recovered or they never really felt ill to begin with. We're not even sure don't. of that. Yeah, but hang on, hang on. What does that actually tell us? This is the point I'm getting at. Because then, okay, you said, okay, you've had the virus, um, off you go in, into the workplace. It doesn't tell us a few things. The first thing it doesn't tell us, if you've had the virus once, what level of immunity has it given you? Has it given you a month, three months, six months, a year, a lifetime, or at the other end of the spectrum, none at all? Nobody can answer that question. And I have to say, Hugh Pym on BBC News, and I think it was Thursday evening, made far too many assumptions in his report when he said uh, it's safe for them to go into the workplace. Well, not necessarily, because point one, we don't know what level of immunity it gives you. And point two, okay, you think it's safe. Off you go to work. You've put your uniform on. Have you got on a bus or a train? Um, have you touched a rail on that bus or, or um, at a handrail or what, what have you? You get into the hospital building, you walk up the stairs, you put your hand on the, um, on the banister on the stairway. How long does the virus survive outside the body? That we don't know for sure as well. So to say it's all hunky-dory if you had the virus a few weeks ago and now you're all right and back you go to work, it is nowhere near as simplistic as that. And with that in mind, my question to you is, what are the values of these antibody tests? Well, firstly, we know that you've had a virus. It won't tell you what virus. So the test isn't very useful. In fact, I think the test is something of a shield behind which politicians have been pushed by populism. Hmm. I don't think the test makes very much difference at all. 
That's yes. just me thinking logically when I said what I just did. I just looked at it logically. We don't know what level of immunity it gives to you. And we also don't know how long the, the virus can survive on the outside the body just by touching surfaces. surfaces. So we, we, we don't know if you can have recovered from the virus hmm. and no longer be positive on the virus, but be a carrier of it. Yeah. Our knowledge of this virus can in the main be written on a postage stamp with a felt tip pen. It is not the flu. It isn't even remotely like flu. It isn't from the same stable as, of diseases as flu. It's as similar to flu as malaria hmm. or cholera or any other potential pandemics. Hmm. Hmm. And, and everybody keeps saying the flu. This is misguiding people. But hmm. even if you misguide people to that extent, the cold is rather like the flu. And we have been looking for ever since the concept of vaccine came into being, we've been trying to find a vaccine for the cold. And we have failed. Totally and the thing, the thing about the cold... And, and Pete, you can, you can see this. You can go into any chemist or any supermarket these days and you've got lotions and potions and this, that and the other to alleviate symptoms of the common cold. There is no cure for it. Um, all, all I would say is that as I have got older, I seem to have fewer colds because I've already had many of the strains of them. And we know with cold viruses, for the most part, if you've had them once, that you don't have them again. We don't know this of the coronavirus um, uh, so they, they, I think there are something like 200 strains of the common cold. I must have had quite a lot of them, having grown up when I did and gone to primary school, secondary school, sixth form college, and then more to the point, even university where colds were spreading all the time there. Um, so I've probably built up a certain level. I've had many strains of cold once and I won't have them again. Hence, I have far fewer colds these days. We there is no evidence to suggest that that's how the coronavirus works or, or that it buys you any time or that it won't mutate. We just don't know. There are just so many variables to this. Um, we, we know so little of how it works. And with that thought in mind, the final main strand of this podcast, if you like, is I want to talk about getting out of the lockdown situation. And one of the examples I'll focus on for the purposes of this is Singapore. And in Singapore, they went into a lockdown situation at the end of January, and they tried to come out of that uh, a few weeks ago. And very, very sadly, they found that there was a second wave of cases, and they've now had to go into quite a severe lockdown again, where now we know that schools and businesses and everything else are going to be closed until at least the end of April. And uh, in terms of statistics, Saturday just gone was their worst day yet, with well over 100 new cases even though there haven't been that many fatalities in Singapore, Saturday in terms of cases was their record high day so far. Now, Singapore, for those who don't know, is a very advanced country, a very well-educated population in the city-state, city very good healthcare system, uh, probably one of the least corruptible governments you'll ever see anywhere on this earth. And yet they found that as soon as they tried to ease off a little bit, and bear in mind also this is a very hot country, and they say that there's a theory that heat would kill the virus. It can't survive out so long in, um, in hot conditions. Singapore is a hot, humid country. They eased off restrictions. The virus came back with a vengeance very quickly. And 
that, that one of the main failings of the mainstream British media is they do not put these things into a wider international context. Well, I'm doing it now. And what I'm getting at is that if you look at what's gone on in Singapore, I'm afraid it shows us that there's no easy way out of this. And if we show any signs at all of easing off, cases are going to start jumping again. Oh, I think there's no doubt of that. And talking of putting things in context, let us also put the total figures in context. Namely, there are 69,177 people are actually recorded as having died of the coronavirus. That is quite a high number, but I would submit it is a mere fraction of the total numbers uh, who have died. In Britain alone, yesterday, 13 people died in a Glasgow old people's home. They weren't recorded as coronavirus for the simple reason that they weren't in hospital and hadn't been tested mm. and hadn't had the opinion of a hospital. Now, that means that nobody who dies at home or dies anywhere other than in a hospital whilst being treated for coronavirus is recorded as a coronavirus death. Mm. Look at Wuhan, where um, yesterday or the day before was um, effectively the Chinese Day of the Dead, when uh, at the end of their um, prolonged New Year ceremonies, they venerate their ancestors. Mm. The queues have been for hours on end at the crematoria for people trying to collect the ashes of those they have lost to coronavirus. It's estimated by the people in Wuhan that somewhere between 42 and 50,000 people died in Wuhan. Interestingly, in China, it being a very much government-controlled country, it is necessary to have a mobile phone with a government-registered app, which is in your name, with an identity number, that, to permit you to travel on buses, trains, and other public transport. It is also necessary to have an app on your phone to be able to go in and out of cities and to go anywhere beyond your immediate original home. So you must have these apps to travel. You must have these apps to get in and out of work. You must have these apps to be in any location in China other than where you were born. 21 million people in the last three months no longer have their registered mobile phone. They have been canceled. 21 million. 21 million. Well, that means that they're probably dead, doesn't it? Well, I've never heard a Chinese official admit to the world 
that Mao Zedong killed in the Cultural Revolution between 50 and 100 million Chinese citizens. Mm. I'm inclined to think we're never going to hear a Chinese official admit that somewhere in the region of 21 million Chinese have died. Yeah, and, and well, based on the logic that you outlined and the necessity to have that app and to have a smartphone, it does suggest that this, the figures are far, far higher in China than we're being told. But, just... but let's put it in perspective, Marcus. We're talking of this, but 69,177 recorded. Let's go with the figures that governments want us to believe. It's not actually very many people. In any given hour and 45 minutes of any normal year, just one hour and 45 minutes, 10,500 people die on average. So realistically, you're looking at what, six hours of normal, annual, natural death. That's not to downplay the horrendous nature of these deaths, but it is to put it in perspective. 69,000 people out of our current 7.8 billion people is not a very big figure. We will recover from this or 10 times this. And I believe that there is the propensity, since there is absolutely no chance of having a tested, reliable vaccination discovered and put through its paces within a year, far more likely 18 months, even if it has already been discovered, before it will be able to roll it out to the public. So without a vaccination, the only option of survival of this is that somewhere between 60 and 80% of the population catch the virus. And the aim of our government has had some marked wisdom to it, which is that if all of them catch it at once, we can't give them any damn treatment because the health service will break down. Therefore, we will try to spread the period over which they have this virus, the 60 to 80% that it is essential and effectively automatic will get the virus so that those who need medical treatment although some will need no treatment some will hardly see any effect from it there will be those who need medical treatment and those who need medical treatment will need ventilators will need beds will need hospital hands-on care etc etc Therefore, what we, we must do is try not to have a peak. Everyone is talking about a peak. We want a controlled 
slowly rising plateau, not a peak, so that our health service can cope with every single case that requires hands-on medical treatment. But the problem you've got is that, okay, that all that you said there makes sense. And I do actually think, regardless of how careful we are, at some point, and it may take many, many months and beyond for it to get to that 60 to 80%, that is the sort of figure that will get the virus in some capacity. The problem you've then got is that, going back to where we were earlier, we don't know what level of immunity that buys you. So therefore, this circle could come round and round again. And of we course, hope that something is good, Marcus. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm just stating things as they actually are. Now, we, we've seen, OK, for example, we've had some sad news the last few days. Uh, Eddie Large, the comedian, died the other day. Now, he had a heart transplant in 2003, but he became very sprightly again after that. He lost uh, a lot of weight. He was much thinner than he'd been as far as I could ever remember seeing him. He was working for the next 17 years, uh, was working as recently as last year. He'd been having problems since around January time. Now, he died with coronavirus, not necessarily of it. Would he have died anyway at some point in the near future? Maybe he was maybe 76, not. wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Maybe, maybe not would have died in the near future. We don't know the answer to that, and I don't wish to speculate because I don't know all the facts about his health background. Today we had the news that the great eccentric Lord Bath has died, uh, again, a decade older than Eddie Large in, in his mid to late 80s, I believe. Um, he died with coronavirus. I don't know what the underlying health problems were there. Uh, if any, I don't know is the answer. We've also lost uh, the singer-songwriter, the guy who wrote uh, Stacy's Mum, that uh, early 2000s hit. Um, we also lost uh, the, the guy who wrote I Love Rock and Roll, Joan, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, then covered by Britney Spears many years later. So there are people in the public eye, and both of those two people weren't especially old. But we're also seeing the deaths of very young children now as well. So uh, whilst, you know, we, you talk in terms of, of figures, uh, these are people we're talking about uh, who are leaving us, in some cases, a little before their time, in some cases, well before their time, many decades before their time. Well, so, two nurses at age 30, one of them age 36 with three children. Yeah, exactly. So... The, the, the sad reality is, and I, I've been cautious about saying this until now, but I think events in Singapore in particular have brought this home to me, an advanced country that really has been trying its best to get to grips with it. We may be stuck with this situation, not just for weeks or months. This could go on easily for several years because we know so little about the virus, let alone even coming close to getting a cure. With that in mind, life is going to change in ways we haven't even comprehended yet, by which I mean going into an office will be impossible. Professional sport or even amateur sport, forget it. Uh, hugging people, kissing people, um, going nightclubbing, going to a bar, going on a date, meeting a new partner. All these things are gonna be very, very hard, if not nigh on impossible, if this goes on for the length of time it might go on. I would agree with you. I have been saying, um, in podcasts, um, which are fairly well followed on the internet, um, and no one has challenged or disagreed, and that we are realistically looking at a figure in Britain of somewhere between one and a half and two million deaths. Now, I'm going to be cautious there. That's a very, very big claim you're making there. And 
I, I understand your thinking, but I don't want to be alarmist either. Um, so I, alarming. That is a po possibility. It's a possibility, yes, but we, I don't want to jump the gun too much. I, I've, 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 I've explained as best I can how we will have to change our way of life for a sustained period, and I think that is the case. Uh, I don't know whether we're talking months. I don't, it won't be weeks. I think we're talking months, if not years here. Uh, and it could be a permanent change in the way we interact with one another. I, I, you know, those figures, it's, it, I, I understand why you're saying it, but it, it's too horrible to comprehend that at the moment. So I, I'm going to go on the side of caution there. I want to end then in as optimistic, I try and end all these podcasts I do with you in an optimistic way and try and see the good in people as best I can. And I do think that Saturday afternoon, that very nice half hour on ITV, where obviously there's going to be no Grand National this year, but I thought they made the best of a very difficult situation where we had just a half hour of television. Presenter Nick Luck, Nick Luck, his name is, you may remember him from the old days of Channel 4 Racing, but he appeared on ITV and he was sat at home via Skype and he said, right, we're going to have two races. We've fed all the data into this virtual racing machine. All the algorithms have been tested. The best horses that have ever run in the Grand National for the last 200 odd years. We've got all the data into a machine. We're going to race them over the entry course. And um, you can bet a minute, uh, maximum of 10 pounds. And um, if you win, you win. Good for you. If you lose, the money goes to the NHS. And it was a fan. It looked so real. It was, it was incredible to watch. The entry course looked so real on this computer graphic. And Inevitably, the great 1970s horse, Red Rum, won it, although it was a great race. Um, Manifesto, the Victorian horse, the Victorian champion, came second. And last year's winner, Tiger Roll, came third. Well, Tiger Roll was going to three Grand Nationals in a row this year, but um, sadly, that wasn't to be. And then we had um, a second race, same rules apply, maximum, bid, uh, maximum stake £10, same principle, of the horses that were likely to take part in this year's Grand National. And um, an outsider won that, the Welsh horse, Potter's Corner. Uh, big, big, big surprise in that one. But that's what the algorithm said, and that's what the race said. And that was a lovely half hour of television. If you made a few quid, great. If you didn't, the money's gone to the NHS. And this is the sort of thing, and they did it in a very sensible way. Nick Luck, the presenter, was doing it via Skype. He had a couple of pundits. Richard Pittman was with him. They were sat at home in their own homes via Skype as well. Same thing. Uh, Richard Pittman's actually a kidney donor, believe it or not. You might not have known that. But I think going forward now, as spring goes into summer, I'd like to see similar things happen to that at Royal Ascot, at Glorious Goodwood, because it's a way, yes, of making a bit of money for the NHS, or quite a lot of money for the NHS, but also keeping a bit of fun in life. And I think that's important as well. I think there's one big drawback to it, though, Marcus. Go on. You may well find that it suits the various betting organisations and many others not to bother with horses in races? Well, virtual racing has been a thing for quite some time now as the technology has improved. Now, you can go into any betting shop any day of the week. You can watch real horse racing, and if there's a gap of 10, 20 minutes, or if there's a meeting that's been called off that day because of the weather, they put virtual racing on. That has been a norm in betting shops for some years. So they've kind of gone down, down that direction. Without going off on too much of a tangent here, um, betting shops and particularly online bookmakers as well. You go into any betting shop, you've got those horrible um, roulette machines they've got in there, which are actually not uh, fixed odds betting terminals. That game you're playing, by the way, is not roulette. It's a machine designed to make money, avoided at all costs, in my view. 
And also you go on any uh, betting website, all the main bookmakers, not only have you got betting on sports, they've got all their interactive uh, casino type games on there, which again is not like being in a casino because their machines, uh, their algorithms are designed to make money. So be very careful of that. But so it, it adds to your question, we're kind of already there. But I, I would say, particularly the big festivals in the summer, the Royal Ascots, the Glorious Goodwood, let's do this again because it's a bit of fun and it, it does get money into the NHS. You can't stake that much on it anyway. And it, it just keeps things going. And I just can't think of a downside to it. I think it's a great idea, anything, um, to provide entertainment um, and keep people somewhere near their old norms. Mm. Um, and I suggest that um, the sooner we start bringing in uh, virtual football, the sooner we can stop paying football as a fortune. Oh, good grief. How long have you got? How long could we debate this? But uh, we are running out of time, unfortunately. But on a final note, then, we talk about how you've kept yourself amused because they make a, a serious point very briefly. Um, a friend of mine who suffers quite badly from depression, he says that going out every day and getting his exercise is very important to him. He said it's like free therapy as far as he's concerned. And I can understand why, because of what it does, the dopamine levels and all that. I can understand that. And I do think, despite everything, although there are very obviously the restrictions in place, it is important to take some form of exercise if you can. But as for yourself, how are you keeping yourself going? Because I know you've got your garden and you're still, you've are still you been enjoying the good weather. Um, what entertainment have you been enjoying? Um, well, to be honest, I've never in my life understood the word boredom. Hmm. Um, failing all else, you can pick up a book. Hmm. Um, I just don't suffer from boredom. So what have you been up to then? What have you been reading? What have you been watching? Well, I haven't been watching anything, actually. I've mm. been inclined to come in and fall asleep in front of the television because I've been working in the garden. <laughs> um, and um, I'm not, I, I do struggle with physical activity as mm. a result of my health, mm. um, which has been fairly wobbly for the last 20 years. Yes. Uh, and um, it does leave me feeling fairly cream crackered. Um, and I, uh, it, it's doing me the world of good, no problem. So um, you, you haven't you haven't seen any? I know your favourite programmes to watch on repeats are New Tricks and Silent Witness. You on the Drama Channel? You haven't seen much of that this week, have you? Uh, no, there hasn't been much on actually. Well, I, I've I've been watching the uh, the very first series of Alfreda Saint Pet for the first time in about fifteen years, and I'd forgotten how funny it really was. I don't know if you're a fan of that, but. Uh, it, it's just, oh, you, you need to watch that. I think you'd appreciate it. It's, for those who don't know, it was about a group of people from different parts of England, uh, a drama, three Geordies, a Bristolian, a, a Brummy, and a Londoner, who, um, it was, it was the, your first series was set in 1983-84, and they all set off for Dusseldorf in Germany to make a load of money on a building site because the wages were better, and that was the best place they could find work at the time. And it, it's just the uh, a, a very well-written comedy drama about their adventures and what they get up to. But I'd forgotten how funny it was. But I was watching one episode um, the, the other day, and I thought, I recognise that guy from somewhere. There was a, a guest in it. He was playing a, the part of a British Army deserter who appeared. And I thought, I recognise him. Where do I know him from? Then I saw the end credits. It was Ray Winston. 
a very young Ray Winston. I thought, good grief. Yes, it was. And then they had the, there was a scene where they were in a bar. They'd gone away for a fishing weekend. They'd gone into this bar and the barman was the guy who played Dr. Leg in EastEnders. And it turns out that the indoor scenes were filmed at Elstree Studios. And even the outdoor building site scenes were filmed there as well at Elstree, which is now the set of Albert Square EastEnders. So uh, Leonard Fenton, the actor who played him, who's still alive, well into his 90s now, um, would, would have been very familiar with that setting at the time. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm enjoying at the moment. And, of course, I've got repeats of Fools and Horses to keep me going, the Sweeney, the Bill, all that sort of thing. Missing my sport, obviously, but it's not the worst hardship in the world. And bit by bit, I'm tidying my flat, believe it or not. Well, I had, uh, for 15 years, I didn't even bother with the television. Hmm. Um, that was when from about 1984 through to the end of the 90s. Mm. Um, I just didn't bother with the television. I, I couldn't find the time to watch it. Yeah, you just had a lot of other stuff on the go at that time. Uh, um, most of this mental chewing gum I can live without. Mm. Uh, in fact, television as a means of entertainment I really wouldn't mind if they uninvented it. Yeah, but you do watch the odd thing, don't you? You do like oh, yeah. new tricks. You do like Silent Witness. There's the odd documentary you like, isn't there? Uh, yes, but um, there are more that annoy me than please me. Well, yeah, but this is, a, this is a sign of the times as well. And I'll end on this point now because we've, we've gone over time as it is. But I just look at the Barb figures that come out every week. And that's the audience research. And you find that even on BBC One, very, very few programmes get more than about 7 million viewers. And I think they, they release the top 15 every week. And um, programme number 15 gets 6 million viewers. And that tends to be some, the 6 o'clock news bulletins everything else we're, we're down into the low millions or more to the point in most cases hundreds of thousands rather than millions of watching these programs audience fragmentation whether it's across um the channels on freeview the channels on sky netflix amazon prime youtube people nowadays are doing other things that the days of 20 million people watching the morecambe and wise christmas show are long gone but that's a debate for another day but anyway my thanks as always to greg and my thanks to you for listening do join us again next week where we'll have another update for you. And of course, do check out the talkpodcast.com website and all our other platforms. We've got a great range of podcasts on there at the moment, including a great interview I did the other day with uh, the broadcaster, conference host and sales rainmaker, as he calls himself, Jeremy Jacobs. So do look out for that. That was good fun as well. Thank you, Greg. And we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.